0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. It's good to see you guys. I'm glad you're here. It's a lot more fun with you. All right, join me in this prayer. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to begin our night standing at the foot of the cross where you declared victory over satan, sin, hell and death our enemies have been dethroned they have been defeated the the lion that prowls about seeking to devour has been defanged he's been declawed he has all bark and no bite and so we declare our victory in jesus and we Thank you in advance for what you're going to do in our lives in this season. In Jesus name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Man, it feels good to start with some victory. All right. You can you can find your seat. And as you do. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter three. As we've hit now the midway point in our study through this new testament epistle this pauline epistle as it's called it's a letter written by paul the apostle to this church located in the city of ephesus and tonight we're going to look at chapter 3 verses 1 through 13 and the title of my message for you is a beautiful mystery a beautiful mystery let's go ahead and begin by reading our text paul says for this reason i paul This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. in him and through him and through faith in him we may approach god with freedom and confidence i ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are for your glory so there's a lot there for us to chew on but just to kind of set the table for where i want to go with things tonight i want to begin by asking how many fans of mystery novels, mystery movies, whodunit books, whodunit films. How many mystery fans do we have in the house? Okay, I recently kind of jumped into that genre. I read, uh, I think it's Agatha, Agatha Christie's book, Murder on the Orient Express. They actually made a movie of that. and It was one of those books that just you're constantly trying to figure out and guess who the perpetrator of this crime was and they keep you guessing until the very end of the book it was it was a lot of fun i enjoyed it so we have this idea of mysteries that paul talks about here um another example when i was a kid a little dirt on pastor ray here one of the things my dad loved to do with my sister and i was he loved to watch this show unsolved mysteries anybody remember unsolved mysteries it had this catchy little hooky song at the beginning of it. Kind of like. Anyways, that song still plays in my nightmares. I have PTSD about that show because we're little kids, right? And if you remember the show, it had this guy and he had this real dramatic voice and they were always talking about these events that happened. It usually related to someone being abducted by aliens and they're like, and he lives in a town in Southern California. What happened? We don't know. It's another unsolved mystery. And then the music plays and my dad's like, well, time for bed. Tuck us in, our eyes are like, you know, bugging out of our head. I never did sleep, you know? Unsolved mysteries. And, and, and so here, Paul, he talks about this divine mystery. He, he mentions it in verse three. He mentions it again in verse four how he'd been given insight into the mystery of Christ, he calls it, in verse 4. Then he mentions it again in verse 6, and then again in verse 9. So four times in 13 verses, Paul makes reference to this divine mystery. Now, we need to draw a line of distinction because our understanding, our modern understanding of what constitutes a mystery is it's something that is shrouded in obscurity or darkness. It's not really something that can be known. If it's mysterious, it infers that you, you don't really know what it is. And so that's our modern understanding of what a mystery is. But, but the biblical understanding of a mystery is actually almost the opposite, A biblical mystery refers to something that had been hidden in times past, but now has been revealed by the Spirit of God. You might say that a a, a divine mystery is is code for a sacred secret. That's what Paul's talking about here, a sacred secret that had been entrusted to him by the Lord, this divine mystery. Now, he gives us some, some clarity, some further clarity, on, on what a biblical concept of a mystery is in the book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. Let's, let's look at this verse together. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. So there you get the concept. It was hidden before for a time for God's purposes and plans, but now it has been revealed. So that's what Paul's gonna talk about here in these verses that we're looking at, this divine mystery. But before he gets into that, he gets sidetracked. The whole whole thought between verses one and 13 really is is more or less a parenthetical thought. I wanna draw this out for you. He begins in verse one by saying, for this reason I, Paul, and I believe that from there what he intended to do was launch into a prayer. So I think it was supposed to go, for this reason, I, Paul, bow my knees to the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that is because if you jump down to verse 14, that's exactly what he does. He comes back and he says, okay, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. So I think Paul was getting ready to pray, but then he got just sidetracked by a thought and it was this divine rabbit hole that, that Paul just kind of fell into in order that the Holy Spirit might bring understanding uh, to our hearts and minds regarding this mystery that he wanted to reveal to us. You ever, you ever done that where you're like kind of chasing a train of thought and then you just get sucked into a rabbit hole? Like, like for example, when you're watching YouTube and you're like, I'm just gonna watch this video and then you kind of look over to the right and they have that column there that outlines the next videos and then before you know it, what happens? You've lost two and a half hours of your life watching like mindless cat videos, or giggling babies, or funny things, or whatever it is, surfing videos, and you've like fallen into the YouTube rabbit hole. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Or maybe it's Netflix for you, or Instagram, whatever. We've all been there, and, and in a sense, I think that's what happened to Paul. He's, he's getting ready to pray, But then he gets sidetracked when he says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, we're gonna get more into this this sidebar in just a moment, but before we do, I have to make mention of the fact that he refers to himself there as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, Paul is a prisoner of Rome. He's in bondage, he's in chains, he's under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar Nero. But he doesn't refer to himself as a prisoner of Nero or a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say, I'm in jail because of the Jews. No, he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, from an earthly perspective, It appeared as though Rome held all the keys, had all the power, Paul was locked up in chains. But Paul had a heavenly perspective on things. He was looking at his circumstances not through the lens of of what was happening around him, but what God was doing through him. And you see, Paul understood rightly so, That God was using his chains to further the gospel and to bring the gospel message to people and to places that he would never otherwise have access to were it not for those chains. He talks about in the book of Philippians how there were a number of people in Caesar's household who had become Christians because of his witness to them. And so God was in control. And Paul may have been chained, but the gospel wasn't. So he's a prisoner of the gospel, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful perspective that is to have about his trial that he's enduring. He could have bemoaned it, but he says, no, God's using it. Now back to this mystery. What was the mystery? And Paul touches on it briefly in verse six, when he says the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles and the Jews would become co-heirs together, and that they would also be members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So this mystery that Paul's unfolding for us has something to do with what God is doing in gathering together Jews and Gentile believers. And then he elaborates further beginning in verse eight when he says, I'm less than the least of all God's people, but this grace has been given to me to preach to the Gentiles, the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain. So now he's really just going to make plain to everyone, the administration of this mystery, which was again, for ages past, kept hidden in God who created all things. Now this is the mystery, his intent, verse 10, this is the mystery. His intent was that now through the church. Okay. So God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. And let's just stop there for now. God wanted to make known his manifold wisdom through the church, in the world, and among the heavenly realms. This was the new revelation. This was the hidden secret secret that God was now revealing. You see, nobody knew about the church in the old testament it was a divine secret you you don't read about the church anywhere from genesis to malachi moses didn't get revelation i mean you think of all of the things that god revealed to moses he was the guy who was given the 10 commandments on the two tablets of stone and hundreds of other laws it was moses who wrote the pentateuch but he didn't get divine revelation into the church neither did king david you think about all the psalms that david wrote and all of the 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 way he walked with god a man after god's own heart but god didn't tell david about the church either it remained a divine mystery for for all those thousands of years until god finally chose to reveal it and who did he reveal it to none other than paul the apostle so when did paul get this divine revelation well You have to go back to his conversion story. Most of you, we've just walked through the book of Acts together as a church, and in Acts chapter 9, you can read about Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road, and it's this seminal moment and and this pivotal moment in the early church, and, and it really reshaped early human history after that point, as Paul goes and and from there plants all of these churches. But after that dramatic experience, he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he talks about this in the letter to the Galatians. He says, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, so when I got saved, when he was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. And we know that he was there for the space of three years. So Paul went into the desert and spent three years with the Lord, just pouring over all of the Old Testament scriptures and reading them through a brand new lens. And it was during this time, I believe, that God began to reveal and unfold to Paul this mystery of the church. And I want to speak to that just for a moment, because there are these times in our lives where we find ourselves in a desert of sorts. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Where you're just in a season that's desolate and it's barren, and it's dry, and it doesn't seem like there's any new growth. It doesn't seem like a lot is happening. That's what I'm talking about when I refer to a spiritual desert. And Paul spent three years in a physical desert. You might feel like you've spent the last three years in an emotional desert or a spiritual desert. And I want you to know that God often uses these seasons in deserted places to draw out of us new revelation. He's drawing you into a deeper place. He's preparing you for future ministry. And there are all kinds of examples of this that you can read about throughout your Bible. He did it with Moses. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt being raised as one of Pharaoh's sons. And then he was driven out of Egypt, and he spent the next 40 years on the backside of the desert, earning what J. Vernon McGee used to refer to as his BD, his backside of the desert degree. And it was there that he saw the burning bush and had that experience with the Lord and was commissioned into service and ministry. Jesus too, he spent 40 days in preparation in the wilderness, fasting before he was tempted by the enemy and then launched his public ministry. The disciples, they spent three and a half years in preparation with Jesus, preparing for Ministry, And so, too, the dry seasons in your life, they don't have to be wasted seasons. They can be times of great fruitfulness as the Lord is drawing you deeper, as he's putting into you knowledge, as he's preparing you for future ministry. That's what God did with Paul. He was God's chosen vessel. He was a chosen vessel. And Paul talks about this in verse when he says, "I, I can't believe that God chose me. I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, yet this grace was given to me. And you have to understand that in so many ways, Paul is absolutely right when he says that. I'm the last guy, Paul is saying, that you would have ever would have expected or picked to be the one that God would use to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to tell them that you've been welcomed into this thing called the church. You see, Paul was a religious Jew. He was raised as a Pharisee. And as such, one of the prayers that he would have recited every single day was, Lord, thank you for not making me a Gentile. Religious Jews in Paul's time hated Gentiles. In fact, they believed the only reason God made Gentiles was to keep the fires in hell burning. So Gentiles just existed to stoke the flames of hell, apparently. And Paul was also one of the leading persecutors of Christians in the early church. He even held the coats of those who stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the church. I mean, if it were left up to me or you or anyone else, nobody would have picked Paul and pointed at him and said, this is the guy we need to grab hold of to unleash on the Gentile world and bring that message to them. But God's ways are not our ways. And God told Paul right from the get-go, that this was what he wanted him to do. In fact, I I mentioned earlier about Paul's conversion story there on the Damascus road. Well, after he has this encounter with the risen Lord, he's blinded for three days, the Bible tells us. And he's led into the city, the city of Damascus. And, And while he's there, just kind of contemplating what just happened to him as he was knocked off his horse by this blinding light, he's introduced to Jesus. In the meanwhile, God taps this guy named Ananias on the shoulder. And he says, Ananias, I I want you to go and and lay hands on Saul and pray for him that he'll receive his sight again. And Ananias is like having this conversation with God is it's really quite classic. He's like, God, I don't know if you know who Paul is or what he's all about, but he's not on our team. Like this guy is an enemy of the gospel and he's not the kind of guy you want to heal. So maybe I just misheard. Maybe the connection's bad. And God's like, no, 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 I want you to go. And this is what the Lord says in Acts nine fifteen. No, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to what? Proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Notice again, God refers to Paul as his chosen instrument, his chosen vessel to go to the Gentiles. Nobody would have been more surprised to hear those words from Ananias' lips than Paul himself. This is what he had in mind when he said, I'm the least of all God's people. In fact, when he refers to himself as the least, he's actually making up another word. We talked about this in our last study. I think it was that Paul made up this word for joined together. He's crammed three Greek words together. Well, he makes up another Greek word here. He takes the normal Greek word for least and he adds a suffix onto it that would be the equivalent of our suffix er or er, you know, adding more to it. So he says, I'm the leaster of all believers. I love that. Some scholars think that he was actually playing off his, his Latin name, Paulus, which means small. And so he's essentially saying, my name is Paul and I'm, I'm small in name even smaller in stature and morally and spiritually, littler than that. I'm the leaster of all Christians. I am small Paul. So that's what Paul's saying. He's tripping out on the fact that God would choose to use him as the instrument through which this mystery would be revealed. And this is always the result of a true encounter of the Lord. When you truly come face to face with the living God, it doesn't Puff you up with pride, it will always humble you. Later on, Paul would go on to say, I'm the chief of all sinners. You know why? Because the closer you get to God, the more you're aware of your own sin, and it humbles you. And every person who has been in the presence of the Lord, again, they're not going to be puffed up with pride, but they'll be humble and contrite in spirit. It's what happened to Peter after he realized who was sharing his boat with him and he pulled in this draught of fish that almost sank his boat and his response was, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Isaiah, he had the same experience when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, Isaiah chapter six, the train of his robe filling the temple with glory, the Bible says. And then he, he saw the Lord and it says, he, he, he looked at it and he said, I'm, I'm undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And so Paul joins this list of people who encounter the Lord and are humbled by that experience. God, why would you use me? Specifically, Paul couldn't believe that he was the one God picked to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. The idea embedded in that word is that God's riches are inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, incalculable, infinite. They're saving riches, sanctifying riches, relational riches, eternal riches, and the point to be made for our lives is this. Jesus always enriches everything he touches. Now, don't mishear me. This is not a get rich quick scheme. But he enriches your life. He enriches your joy. He brings more fullness. He brings vitality. He brings peace. He brings love. He exchanges all of your guilt for this guilt free life. God enriches everything he touches. He never subtracts. He only gives. So forever, for anyone in here who has been listening to the lie that to follow Christ is, is to, to lose something, you have been listening to the lies of the enemy. You see, Paul, he had a right understanding of who God is and what God wanted to do through him, and it had to do with this message about the church. So let's talk for a minute about that. What was God's heart for the church? And we see it in verses 9 and 10, where he says that he wanted to make it plain for everyone, that through the church, God's manifold wisdom was going to be made known. So we got to talk about the church. Now, the church is not just this building that you come to or this place that you visit on Sundays or if you're super spiritual, maybe Sundays and Wednesdays and, or, or however often you come. I mean, how many of you remember this little thing? Take your hands and just do it with me so we can all relive this from our childhood. Put your hands together and you kind of... Fold your fingers in. All right, here's the church, say it with me. And here's the steeple. Open it up, and out come the people. We all remember that, right? The church. But the church isn't just this Rotary Club, it's not just this thing that we come and hear a guy talk and maybe sing some songs or say some prayers or whatever it is. The church, listen, the church, listen, the church is God's vehicle for making known his manifold wisdom on earth and in heaven. Perhaps you've heard the story about the three men who were working on a stone pile at a construction site. A curious passerby was walking by, and he he was eager to find out what they were doing. And so he asked the first worker, what are you doing? He said, I'm chiseling stone. Good enough. He walked to the next guy. What are you doing? His reply was, I'm making a living. He walked to the third guy that's there just chiseling away at stone. He said, what are you doing? And the guy stood up and he said, I'm building a great cathedral. You see, of the three men, only that last guy had the proper perspective of what he had been caught up in. He had the bigger picture in mind. And what Paul is trying to do here, he's trying to get us to see the magnitude the glory and the grandeur of what we've got going on down here in the church. And I I want to belabor this point because I think it's popular these days to kind of talk down on the church Most of the studies out there are suggesting that the church is in decline and less and less people are coming to church or prioritizing church. And I'd just like to say on that point, most of those studies are skewed and and they're limited in their context. And most of them are flat out wrong. Let me just throw some statistics at you that would seem to indicate the other is actually what's true. There are, as of today, an estimated 80,000 people who are becoming Christians every single day throughout the world. 80,000 believers. Listen to this. Yeah, you can clap for that. In 1910, there were roughly 8.7 million Christians in Africa. Today, 8.7 million in 1910. Today, a little over 100 years later, there are 631 million Christians in Africa. It's estimated that one in every four Christians in the world is African. By the year 2030, that number is estimated to rise to 40% of the population. The same thing is happening in other places of the world, like China. I mean, the the explosive growth of the underground church in China has been likened to what happened in the earliest days of Christianity during the Book of Acts under the rule of Rome. In 1949, there were an estimated 1 million believers in China. Today, it's estimated that there are over, well over, 100 million believers worshiping in China. By the way, that's more believers worshiping in China on any given Sunday than are in America. The gospel is being proclaimed to every people, every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And the name of Jesus right now is being praised in 4,765 languages and counting. The days are soon approaching when we're going to join all of these people from all of these different places around the world at the throne of grace. And we're going to cast our crowns at Jesus' feet, and we're going to sing the song of the Lamb. The church is alive and well. God is on the move. And you need to know this. Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his church. It's it's popular to say today, I love Jesus, but I'm not a fan of the church. You heard that? I I love Jesus, but not the church. And, And I've heard that a number of times. But you need to know something. To love Jesus is to love his church. Why? Because Jesus referred to the church as his bride. And let me just tell you something. If you say, I like you, I just don't want anything to do with your wife. We're going to have beef. Like, that's not a relationship I'm interested in pursuing. And Jesus says the church is his bride. He lays down his life for his bride. Jesus is so connected to the church that he calls the church his body. He's the head. And we are the body of Christ. So think about that. And if you're into the New Testament and you're trying to live out your faith, you're not going to get very far before you start bumping into the church everywhere. Jesus, he said, I'm going to build my church. It's his church. It's not Pastor Ray's church. It's not Daniel Bailey's church. It's not Marnoth the Chapel. It's his church. And he's building his church. And he said, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Then you move on a little further in the book of Acts. It's all about the growth and expansion of the church in the early age of Christianity. It begins with the, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and then the spread of the gospel through the Mediterranean world. And then you move on from there. Most of the New Testament are letters, books like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. These are letters that were written to local churches and they talk about how the church should conduct itself and how believers should behave within the church. And then finally you get all the way to the book of Revelation and there you'll find seven letters that Jesus addresses to seven churches. And at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus comes back in dramatic fashion to return for his bride, the church. Now, what about all those hypocrites that are in the church, right? I mean, you say you're, you're painting this picture. We need to commit ourselves to this local body of believers. But what about all the hypocrites? Well, listen, there are always going to be hypocrites, but you shouldn't let that stop you from becoming part of a local congregation, right? Because why? There's, there's just no such thing as a perfect church. Because why? We're all sinners and every church is made up of redeemed sinners. Here's what Charles Spurgeon that guy that's referred to as the prince of preachers. Here's what he had to say on this point, And I'm just going to read this quote. He said, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I'd found one, I should have spoiled it for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. us. <laughs> Couldn't get that last word out. I like that. If you do find the perfect church, don't join it. You're just going to ruin it. So let's just celebrate the fact that we're all broken, messed up sinners that God saved by his glorious grace. By the way, that's what God delights in doing. You know, what he does. He loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And that's what Paul is a perfect example of. The church may not have been perfect, our church certainly isn't, but that doesn't change the fact that it is still the primary means by which God has chosen to showcase his manifold wisdom in this world and among the heavens. There's just something about the perfect agape love of our heavenly father flowing through imperfect channels and vessels like us that brings greater glory and great delight to the heart of God the Father. Don't ever forget that. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. There's this this story about this church during the Second World War that it was located, this church was located in France. And, and during the battles there, um, the church was bombed and, and it was ultimately destroyed. And so in the aftermath of that bombing, the parishioners made their way back among the rubble and they're just kind of seeing if anything survived. And, and evidently they found this statue that had been sculpted by this local famous artisan in the town from years previous and it was still standing there. And so they looked at it and they were just in awe of this, but then they noticed that the hands had been sheared off of this statue by a beam that had fallen from the rafters there in the church. And so they were kind of weighed back and forth. What should we do? And a local artist offered to reconstruct the hands as they're beginning to reconstruct their church and he offered to do that for the church. And they prayed about it, but in the end they decided that it was kind of a beautiful message. And so they left the statue without the hands, because they said, you know, it's a picture of the role that we're supposed to fulfill here on earth, right? If there are hurting people, if there are lonely people, if there are suffering people, then we're his hands, we're his feet. And so instead of putting the hands back on, they put on there a plaque. He has no hands but ours, for we are his body. This is what we're doing. We're showcasing his grace, showcasing his love, showcasing his mercy, showcasing his wisdom, this multifaceted, variegated wisdom of God. But that's not the only thing God is doing through his church. There's one more thing we got to talk about this evening. This idea of angels being instructed. He mentions it in verse 10. He says, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, now get this, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Let's talk for a minute about this angelic university. This is really cool. Now when he mentions these these rulers and authorities, Elsewhere in scripture, you can find parallel scriptures that talk about how these are different rankings of angelic beatings. These are titles for different rankings of levels of of angels. So what are angels? Well, we know that they are ministering spirits that are sent to minister to those who will one day inherit salvation. We know that we have guardian angels. The Bible talks about how the little ones... The kids, they have angels whose faces continually behold the face of their father who's in heaven. And that's just kind of a cool concept to think that, you know, we've got guardian angels. And I often try to depict those for my kids as I'm tucking them in and I'm praying over them. And I'll tell them, you know, and Lord, I just pray that you would post up, you know, your angels right by their bed. In fact, you know, there's probably one right here. And and if I could just pull back the veil and see into the spiritual realm. He would be so impressive and big old sword and big old muscles and big old wings. And, and I'd you know, just put my hand here and give the angel a high five. I could be giving an angel a high five right now. I have no idea. We'll watch the tape in heaven. But they're there. And we know that they were present at creation. The Bible talks about how they saw God and sang as the stars were flung into space and the planets were given their position. They fill the heavens with praise. Sometimes the Bible says that they, they, they dress up incognito. The Bible says, be careful when you entertain strangers. Some have entertained angels unaware. How cool is that? Like, you might have rubbed shoulders with an angel today. I feel like I wake up next to one every single morning. Somebody please tell my wife I said that. (laughs) So we have angels all around us, but as powerful, as mighty as they are, many of them are soldiers in God's army, but as powerful as they are, they are not the equivalent of God, and they are not omniscient, and so they're learning. So the, the question is, what are these angels learning? What is it that God is teaching to the angelic host through this vehicle called the church. What is this big secret that was hidden from previous ages that God is unfolding to them? Well, I think the big one is his plan of salvation. I mean, they're watching God create everything. They watch him put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then they stand back and with mouths agape, watch in horror as Adam and Eve plunge into sin and despair and darkness and are cut off from the presence of God. And they think, well, that's it. Those suckers are toast. But God doesn't reject Adam and Eve, and he begins to send prophets, and he begins to send men and women to prepare them for the coming of this one who is to come. And then they watch God, Jesus, descend from his throne in heaven and come down to the earth. And they're like, what is going on? And their minds are blown. And they watch him love and they watch him serve and they watch him suffer. And then they watch him go to the cross. And they see the king of kings who has been enthroned in glory for all of eternity past nailed to a wooden cross between two thieves for crimes he had never committed. And then they see him die. And they're thinking, what is going on in their minds? Their little angelic minds are absolutely blown. I'm laughing because I'm using the word little just like my dad. I'm turning into my dad. Their little angelic minds are blown. And then they watch as Jesus is placed in a tomb. And three days later, they, they witness his resurrection. They're going, oh, my gosh, what is going on? And then they watch this birth of the thing called the church and how God is working through the church to expand his kingdom and to bring the gospel to every nation, people, tongue and tribe. And they're just blown away by the whole thing. See, in some way, the history of the church is a sort of graduate school for angelic beings. If you could picture it, it's as though the theater is history. The stage is the world. The actors are the church. The writer is God. He's the one who directs and produces the drama. And the audience are cosmic beings. One author describes how these angels are are leaning over on tip intently observing the teachings and the actions of God's people. As they see God sustain us by his spirit and through his grace in the midst of the trials we face, it just blows their mind and it causes them to cry out with more praise to their heavenly father. So that's what's going on. So much more than just what we see on the surface. There is stuff going on in the heavenly realms. There is stuff going on in the spiritual realm. There is stuff going on inside of your heart. All of that is taking place every time we gather together like this. It's not trivial. It's not trite. It has eternal ramifications and implications. And so what are the action steps? If this is how God sees his church... If this is the magnitude of what we find ourselves caught up in, then we ought to give ourselves to this cause, to the expansion of God's kingdom, the proclamation of the gospel. We ought to look for ways to extend grace to one another. Why? Because the angels are taking notes. What is this thing called the church? How do Christians behave? What does it look like? And we're giving them a lesson in the grace of God because you see, Jesus created the angels but he died for us. He bled for us. And they see him. But we don't see him, and yet we still love him. And to them, this is cause for great celebration. I'm reminded in this moment of that scene in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet describes the heavenly scene, and there are those angels. And with two wings they fly. And with two wings, they cover their face because God is too holy to look upon. And with two wings, they cover their feet in a sign of humility. And it says day and night, they ascribe to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who was and is is to come. Holy. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.